0: You cannot imagine my surprise when I asked Aidan Sberi whether we could play his video about 9-11 and academic freedom during this conference, since nothing would have seemed more appropriate. If you go to the next slide, you'll see, of course, he's addressing academicians' approach to the 9-11 commission report which those of us who have studied it thoroughly recognizes to be making a host of indefensible claims for virtually everything asserted by the 9-11 Commission report, whether it's about the airplanes, the hijackers, the phone calls, the alleged hits, the destruction of the Twin Towers, and of the World Trade Center, and the attributions of responsibility are all provably false, provably false. I mean, it's not a matter of speculation, provably false. So when we go to the next slide, you see, I thought it was uh, going to be wonderful to have scholars like Graham McQueen, who's featured here, John McMurtry, who's a celebrated Canadian philosopher, too involved in all of this by way of this very nice presentation, which could be described as 9-11 light, but because it's focusing on exactly the issue that concerns us, to win academic freedom, I thought could hardly have been a better fit. If you go to the next slide, therefore, you'll see that I wrote to him with a following, Aiden. Following up on my previous communication, we have finalized the program and would very much like to include your documentary, 9-11, in the academic community as part of our program. I understand from Stephen Francis that when he included your work relative to our first academic freedom conference, you objected because the conference was addressing the Holocaust as an example of a subject that has been largely banned from academic investigation. That troubles me profoundly because research on significant historical events surely falls within the scope of academic freedom. I am surprised that someone like yourself, who has done such good work on 9-11, would draw the line at the Holocaust. My attitude has always been that if it was real, then research would confirm it, and if it was not, then the world deserves to know. I'm at a loss as to why you would support academic freedom in one case, 9-11, and oppose it in another, the Holocaust. Surely, you are not afraid of the truth. And since discovering the truth is the ultimate objective of scholarly inquiry, I would entreat you to support our conference by having your excellent work, 9-11 and academic freedom, be broadcast during our conference. Please let me know that we have your permission to include it during this event with appreciation. Well, as the next slide shows, I would receive a rather lengthy response from uh, Aidan, in which he explained, uh, perhaps a bit laboriously, that he disliked the idea of having his work associated with the Holocaust. And if you turn to the next slide, that... You know, he simply reiterates his uh, lack of willingness for us to broadcast. So, of course, we aren't. But I think his reasons are actually bad reasons, and I'm going to explain why. Stephen Francis, as the next slide shows, did some research and discovered that Aiden is an associate of Kevin Ryan who's involved with uh, 9-11 research uh, from architects and engineers, which espoused the view that the buildings were destroyed by nanothermite, uh, which is, in fact, an incendiary uh, that emits bright light in in very high temperatures, around 4,000 degrees, but, in fact, lacks the explosive ability to blow the buildings apart. Uh, Stephen also discovered that Kevin Ryan uh, takes uh, pride in his uh, belief in the Holocaust. So are we wrong? I mean, is, is it also cut and dry that uh, we shouldn't be investigating these issues further? Uh, I, I'm still actually perplexed that Aidan would deny us the opportunity to present his video, but there it is. So let's take a look at the two cases that seem to make a difference to Eidman. Let's start with the uh, Holocaust in the next slide. where well, the traditional narrative is completely familiar. Hitler embarking upon a wars of aggression, military conquest, systematic genocide, with which I have been familiar since I was a kid. Going to the Rialto Theater in South Pasadena and seeing video documentaries that showed images like the following one, the next slide, of masses of bodies in pits, that certainly creates the impression that something absolutely horrifying has taken place. And, of course, according to the Holocaust narrative, uh, there were a vast number, six million of Jews who were alleged to have been put to death at gas chambers in concentration camps like Auschwitz, seen in the next slide. Once you begin to do research, however, it can be very disconcerting because you will discover that more Christians than Jews died at Auschwitz. In fact, if you take a look at a map of Auschwitz, the way it was laid out, as the next slide shows, you'll discover that Auschwitz had a whole lot of facilities that don't make a lot of sense if this was in fact an extermination center. Uh, It had, for example, a hospital with surgical unit, obstetrical gynecological block for inmates, quarantine areas for newly arriving prisoners, It had workshops for woodworking and sewing, orchestra played Sunday concerts here, kitchen with 13 coal-filed stoves, a bakery and a butcher shop, a post office, believe it or not, a brothel, art museum, and a library. Uh, This just doesn't sound like a center for the extermination of Jews. And indeed, perhaps the most jolting, eye-opening photograph I've ever seen is the following, a photograph that I found in Nick Collerstrom's book, Breaking the Spell, of the British soccer team at Auschwitz. Now, take a look at those lads. Do they look undernourished, impoverished, as though they're being worked to death? Or do they look fairly physically fit? Because if there was a UK soccer team at Auschwitz, of which the world has remained by and large unaware, what else could be the truth about the actual events of World War II about which we have been, it might appear, misinformed? Well, a good place to start is the next slide, which reflects that... There are 236 references to six million Jews in dire straits or fear of loss of their lives prior to the Nuremberg trial announcement. In other words, these all occurred very early on, in fact, beginning in 1890, and up to all 236 published before the Nuremberg tribunals. Here are a couple of examples. Look at the next slide. Back one, Steve. In 1900, American Zionist leader Rabbi Stephen S. Wise let slip the Zionist agenda behind the Holocaust hoax to promote public sympathy for Zionism and the Jewish takeover of Palestine. In Rabbi Wise's address, he mentions there are six million leaving living bleeding, suffering arguments in favor of Zionism. Here, here's another in the next slide. Biggs America saved six million in Russia. massacre threatens all Jews as Soviet power wanes, declares krenin coming here for aid. Russia's six million Jews are facing extermination. this in 1921. And if you go to the uh, first academic freedom conference, you'll find I present quite a few more. But then there are lots to choose between when there are 236. So what's going on? Well, this claim of six million Jews having died by being put to death in gas chambers does not appear to have any historical or empirical evidence. Consider the next slide. The International Committee of the Red Cross was visiting all of the camps. They were keeping very meticulous records about who died, their nationality, their age, their religion, and their cause of death. And the number reported here is approximately 271,000 a few more, but in fact, they adjusted their number in 1993, and the International Committee of the Red Cross upped it to 296,081. 296,081. That's not even 300,000, which obviously is a minuscule proportion of the purported 6 million. So where did this figure come from? Well, the next slide gives us a clue because it appears to be derivative of a disputed passage in Leviticus that has been interpreted as meaning that the chosen people can return to the promised land only when there are minus six million who have been consumed in the flames. But even the number six million has to be introduced as an interpolation. Because there was no word in the original Hebrew for six million at all. What this means is that the number of six million has theological origin. It's religious in origin. It has nothing to do with empirical evidence or with the facts and history of World War II. So what's going on here? Look at look at slide number the next slide. Robert Faurisson has given us a very insightful explanation of the events that transpired that led to the Nuremberg Tribunal and its efforts to focus on Germany as responsible for these massive numbers of deaths. As Faurisson explains, the massive Allied bombing of German cities, which incidentally retrospectively viewed from the point of view of the Geneva Conventions of 1949, in particular, Article Thirty-Three, were a form of collective punishment, where the Geneva Article specifies no one may be punished for a crime they did not personally commit, and yet millions of Germans were being bombed. Look at the next. Look at the next slide, for example, and you'll see an example of the massive destruction of the German cities, innocent civilians being punished for crimes they did not commit, which means that under the Article 33, the Allies were committing war crimes. These are war crimes. And of course, for those familiar with Article 33, they understand even our recent sanctions on Iraq, for example, which led to the death of 500,000 Iraqi infants. And on Iran, uh, more recently, are once again, war crimes committed by the United States, punishing people for crimes they did not commit. Well, if you turn to the next slide, you'll see that not only do we have that uh, explanation of why the Allies were trying to divert responsibility for these massive deaths, because, in fact, the Allied bombing interdicted the railroad lines to the camps, which were actually labor camps, You can't get work out of a corpse and where, because they couldn't resupply, there was a lot of starvation at the end of the war, but not because it was a German policy. That does not appear to be the case at all. And in fact, the camps were typically located in the vicinity of major war manufacturing, such as uh, artillery and ammunition uh, operations. But what he also reports is about the trials of Ernst Zundell, a Canadian who denied the Holocaust in 1985 and 1988. And what's truly fascinating about this is that in attempting to punish Ernst Zundell for distributing a tract entitled Did Six Million Really Die?, a revisionist booklet by Richard Harwood, first published in 1974 in Great Britain, They found the prosecution was unable to produce a single witness who would swear under oath to having seen any inmates put to death in gas chambers. And as though that weren't stunning enough, look at the next slide. And we discover that during the second trial, there was an effort made to contact American penitentiaries that had gas chambers, six of them in particular, who recommended that a fellow by the name of Fred Lochter was a leading expert on gas chambers. And where they, at Zundel's expense, Fred Lochter went to Poland with a secretary, his wife, a draftsman, a video cameraman, and an interpreter. He came back and drew up a 192-page report, including appendices, 32 samples taken on the one hand from the crematories of Auschwitz and Birkenau, at the site of the homicidal gassings purported, and on the other, in a disinfection gas chamber at Birkenau, his conclusion was simple: there had never been any homicidal gassings at Auschwitz, Birkenau, or Majdanek. And indeed, that conclusion has been reinforced by more recent research, by uh, Gerhard R- R- Rudolf, for example who did scientific studies of the walls of the gas chamber, because Zyklon B was supposed to have been the agent that brought about these deaths. It is a form of cyanide. It would turn bodies pink, and the walls of chambers where it was used blue, but we have no reports of pink bodies. And the only walls of chambers that were turned blue were those that were being used for delousing, where Zyklon B indeed was being used in massive quantity to kill body lice that were responsible for the spread of typhus and dysentery. In other words, it was being used to keep the inmates alive and well and productive. If you look at the next slide, you'll see Nick Hollistern has actually published a quite stunning book, Breaking the Spell. Uh, where he not only presents the results of the reports of the International Committee of the Red Cross, but also had access to the British death books because the British had cracked the German code and were keeping copious records of everything that was transmitted by the Germans, who were highly methodical and systematic and kept expert records on all of the camps who lived, who died, and it's all there, which Nick has used to demonstrate that the numbers I've given from the International Committee of the Red Cross, from 1993, 296,081 total deaths from all causes, none from dying by being gassed to death using Zyklon B, are in substance correct. If you go to the next slide, you'll see that I have sought to substantiate the best work by the best people on a whole host of issues in this particular book, including about the the moon landing, uh, where there's an overwhelming evidence that we did not put men on the moon, uh, the death and replacement of Paul McCartney in 1966, which, stunning to me, evokes the most emotional and irrational reactions. Even when we present forensic evidence that show that Paul before late 1966 and Paul after had different shape and size skulls, different teeth, different palates, different ears, different heights. you notice on the back cover to the left, there's a photograph of Paul on the left with Jane Asher to whom he was engaged and then as he's usually referred to as fall, F-A-U-L for false Paul or fake Paul on the right, where he's significantly taller than Jane. In addition, and because if you could replace a close, most closely scrutinized figure in the world with somebody else, and by and large, the world not catch on, other substitutions are comparatively trivial for example, the first death of Saddam Hussein, who was taken out by a B-1 bomber pilot raid on a restaurant on the outskirts of Baghdad, which killed Saddam, his two sons, and 50 or 60 members of his general staff on 7 April 2003, about three weeks into the event, which was going to be announced during you know, a mission accomplished event on the USS Liberty off the coast of San Diego. But where someone, we believe it was Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld, realized that because three presidents, Carter, Reagan, and Ford, had signed executive orders against the assassination of foreign leaders, that had W. announced this aboard the Lincoln, he would have been admitting that he had violated the law. So to conceal what happened, they took a double of Saddam put him in a spider hole, claimed to discover him there, put him on trial, and hanged him. Joe Viles from Australia was among the first to notice, however, that the teeth and jaw of uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, the regal ruler of Iraq, were not the same as the teeth and jaw of his double, where Saddam had excellent teeth and an overbite, but his double had terrible teeth, and an underbite. So once again, we find that scrupulous research can expose these kinds of charades. And in the second instance, we address the first death of Saddam Hussein, who in fact died in uh, uh, Afghanistan on 15 December 2001, buried in an unmarked grave. There were local obituaries about it at the time. Nick Colestran has published about it, Osama bin Laden, 1947 to 2001. David Ray Griffin has published a whole book about it, Osama bin Laden, Dead or Alive. But it was very expedient and beneficial to the Obama administration to kill him for a second time in 2011, ten years after his death, by sending in a SEAL team to a compound in Pakistan. So if you want the details of how we know what happened here too, you can find them as well in this book, and I suppose we didn't go to the moon either, for moon rock books, which I offer as a reference work. You know, scholars need to document and cite their sources. Well, uh, I have put together key sources on all the issues I've just enumerated. Well, then what about uh, 9-11, if we go to the next slide? Maybe, maybe Aiden had had a point. I mean, if architects and engineers got it right, uh, maybe there's nothing more to be said. Well, here we're looking down on the World Trade Center after its destruction, which was striking because it was as though all and only buildings with a WTC designation had been targeted for destruction and indeed, it was done in a very thoroughgoing way. If you go to the next slide, we see the Twin Towers, which were masterpieces of architecture and engineering, received many prizes. They had a tube within a tube design where there were 47 massive core columns surrounded by 280 external steel support columns to create an enormous open working space, as you see in the next slide. Uh, 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 which shows those core columns going up. Uh, this this design was very robust. Uh, the, the World Trade Center was upset about competition and sought to bring a lawsuit uh, disputing the safety of the construction, but there was nothing to it. Construction proceeded unabated, and the Twin Towers, the World Trade Center, opened in 1970. If you look at the next slide, you'll see something terribly significant about their design, namely that the thickness of the steel gradually depreciated from bottom to top. So it was six inches thick in the sub-basement, then five, four, three, two, one, to a half-inch and only a quarter-inch at the very top. That becomes extremely significant in relation to the uh, official story of what happened to the buildings, as I am going to explain. Now, if you look at the next slide, you see a sequence about the destruction of the North Tower, where you can see on the left the antenna at the top, which uh, made it very easy to discern in relation to the South Tower, which had no such antenna. Larry Silverstein, who became the first and only private owner of the World Trade Center just six weeks before these events, when it was transferred from the port authority to his possession, immediately fired the security firm that had looked after the towers since they had first opened and replaced it with an Israeli firm, Kroll, obtained a new insurance policy, including a terrorist clause, so that when there were purportedly two plane attacks, he claimed double indemnity and uh, obtained in excess of $4.5 billion for a $114 million investment. Although he and his daughter characteristically had breakfast at Windows of the World atop the North Tower every day, where they both worked in the building, that day neither of them came for breakfast. Where Larry maintained that his wife had made a dermatological appointment for him that caused him not to be there. Well, look at the next slide. We're told we're dealing here with a, with a collapse. These buildings are supposed to have collapsed, of floor upon floor upon floor, bringing the whole buildings down. Does that look to you like a collapse? The fact is those buildings are blowing apart in every direction from the top down. They're being converted into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust. And when it's over, as I shall explain, they're actually destroyed to or even below ground level. Why was that necessary? Well, take a take a look at the next slide, and you'll see, you'll get an inkling of what was going on. Uh, this is a GIF about the final moments of some remnants of the core columns in the North Tower, uh, which were being converted to very fine dust. Now, it's possible to argue The claim has been made that it was just falling and there was dust already on it that created this impression. But when you put the totality of the evidence together, it's quite clear that something highly unusual was taking place and it was no kind of collapse. If you look at the next slide, you'll see what I mean when I say those buildings were being converted into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust which enveloped Lower Manhattan. And indeed, the next photograph shows, later in the day, the enormity of the envelopment of the city by this very fine dust. Now, just to give you a contrast, take a look at the next slide, which is from an actual collapse, uh, probably in Pakistan, of a a concrete slab structure. We had one floor collapse on another. That, of course, is completely different than what we had with the Twin Towers. If you go to the next slide, however, you'll see Building 7 went down in in a a clear form of collapse, brought about by a controlled demolition seven hours after the Twin Towers had been destroyed, where, during a famous telephone conversation, Recollected by Larry Silverstein himself, he was on the phone with a fire commander. He actually pauses, suggesting to me he knew this person under a different uh, guise or role. That perhaps there had been so much death and devastation, perhaps the best thing to do was to pull it. And he said they made the decision to pull and we watched the building come down. Now, to pull it is a common construction term for bringing down a building by a controlled demolition. And this event had all the signs of a controlled demolition coming down very much in its own footprint virtually at free-fall speed, meaning that all the support columns had been blown out from under it. And yet this is extraordinary, because this building may be the most robust ever designed by the hand of man. Even in the Twin Towers, they used hollowed-out steel beams because they provide virtually as much support as solid. But this building, which was constructed over two enormous electrical generators providing electricity for Lower Manhattan, was designed to never collapse, and they actually used solid steel beams. It's fascinating and unknown to most, even in the 9-11 community, but a fellow by the name of Barry Jenkins, from the, from the New York Emergency Management Authority had gone to Building 7 because Rudy Giuliani had two floors there for his emergency control center that had their own separate water and, and air provision. And when he got there to the floors, he discovered there were still steaming cups of coffee, half-eaten sandwiches. A fireman said, we gotta get you out, out of here and took steps to get him from the building. Uh, Barry reported hearing explosions going off while he was in the building. At one point, a stairwell was blown out from under him. He felt himself stepping over dead bodies, though in the pitch blackness he couldn't see them. When he emerged into daylight, he was interviewed by several reporters, and his story can still be found online. Now, what's particularly fascinating about this is that the (laughs) Building 7 is not even mentioned in the 9-11 Commission report. It was, however, the subject of an independent investigation by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And just a few days before they were to release their report, which Barry Jennings was in the position to refute on the basis of his own personal experience, Barry was found dead. Now, if you look at the next slide, you'll see what I'm talking about. This is uh, the floors from the controlled demolition collapse of Building 7. Now, we know from experience with other controlled demolitions that it leaves a residue equal to 12% of the height of the original. In this case, the building was 47 floors, 12% of which would have been five and a half floors, and that's what we got with Building 7. But with the Twin Towers, which were... 110 stories high, we should have more than twice five and a half. We should have 12 or 13 floors. But look at the next slide. This is down, peering down on Building 6 with a huge scoop-out center. Well, over to the left is that massive pile of debris from Building 7. And to the right in the immediate foreground is where the North Tower stood. And notice, there's virtually nothing there. As Father Frank Morales from St. Mark's Episcopal Church reported to me twice during interviews, those buildings were destroyed to or even below ground level. Well, look at the official account as the next slide shows. According to the government, in relation to the North Tower, for example, there was the intersection of the, the plains, purportedly, And it caused the 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 fires allegedly caused the steel to weaken and the to let the upper floors crash down on the lower. Now I'll go through how this is an impossible scenario, but it's the one that's been foisted off on the American public. Look, for example, at the next slide. I published long ago 20 reasons the official count of 9-11 is wrong, and here I cite a few of the points made there. Number two, most of the jet fuel, principally kerosene, burned up in those fireballs in the first 15 seconds or so. Below the 96th floor in the North Tower and the 80th in the South, those buildings were stone-cold steel, unaffected by any fires at all other than some very modest office fires that burned around 500 degrees Fahrenheit, which, where the building functioned as a massive heat sink dissipating heat from building up on any particular location of the steel. Point three, the melting point of steel at 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit is about 1,000 thi- degrees higher than the maximum burning temperature of jet fuel-based fires, which do not exceed 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit under optimal conditions but the NIST examined 236 samples of steel and found that 233 have not been exposed to temperatures above 500 degrees Fahrenheit and the others not above 1,200. I continue in the next slide. Four, underwriters laboratory certified the steel in the buildings up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for three or four hours without any significant effects where these fires burned neither long enough nor hot enough at an average temperature of about 500 degrees for about one hour in the South Tower and one and a half in the North to weaken, much less melt. Five, if the steel had melted or weakened, then the affected floors would have displayed completely different behavior with some degree of asymmetrical sagging and tilting, which would have been gradual and slow, not the complete abrupt and total demolition that was observed which means the NIST cannot even explain the initiation of any collapse sequence whatsoever. And indeed, if you just look at the gross image of the fires, you see that they were clearly oxygen deprived because they were emitting dark black smoke. That indicates that these fires were not receiving sufficient oxygen to attain anything close to their highest possible temperature, which would still have been a thousand degrees below that of melting steel and where the overwhelming evidence this is from the government itself from nist demonstrates that the temperature of the fires in the 236 samples they studied were the same as that of ordinary office fires which we know well cannot cause a steel structure high-rise to collapse look at the next slide and you'll see where charles baldwin who's a retired high school math and physics teacher, has calculated that in relation to the top floors of the North Tower, for example, that that those uh, floors would have been opposed by uh, uh, 100, 118 vector forces upward uh, in opposition to one vector downward. In other words, it was impossible for the buildings to have collapsed In particular, he has observed that those top floors represented only 1.4% of the mass of the steel, and the idea that 1.4% of the mass of the steel could overwhelm the lower 98.6 is simply absurd. The next slide is significant because it reflects the difference between the three major groups in 9-11 research. Architects and Engineers 9-11 It was done with nanothermite, unexploded chips of which were found in dust samples from an apartment near ground zero. Judy Wood. Directed free energy technology was used, where dues provide more energy than conventional devices and can be directed. Scholars for 9-11 truth. It was done using a highly sophisticated arrangement of micro or mini nukes with a variable radius of, say, 100 feet, and directed upward to take out floors or cubes of 10 floors, one at a time from the top down, to simulate some kind of collapse. Now, if you go to the next slide, you'll see that that S- Stephen Jones, Kevin Ryan, Niels Herrod, and others published an article about nanothermite in the Bentham Open Chemical Physics Journal. And I'm not concerned to dispute that they found nanothermite chips, only that they cannot have possibly been responsible for the destruction of the Twin Towers, for reasons that I'm about to elaborate. If you look at the next slide, however, there's been so much promotion by architects and engineers that it was done during nanothermite that we can have a volume called Explosives in the WTC for dummies. Understanding how they blew up the Twin Towers was never so easy. Explosive nanothermite, of course. But look at the next slide and you see why there is a problem here. T. Mark Hightower, who's a chemical engineer and I, have published three articles. Has nanothermite been oversold to the 9-11 Truth community one May, 2011? is 9-11 truth based upon a false theory, 17 July 2011, and T. Mark Hightower himself, nanothermite, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit, 28 August 2011, where the key points made here are shown in the next slide. To wit, that when you compare the, the, the detonation velocities of various, various explosives, you find that nanothermite really isn't a contender that it's a law of material science, that in order for an explosive to destroy a material, it must have a detonation velocity equal to or greater than the speed of sound in that material. Well, the speed of sound in concrete is 3,200 meters per second. The speed of sound in steel is 6,100 meters per second. But the highest attributed detonation velocity or nanothermite in the scientific literature is only 895 meters per second. Since so 895 meters per second is enormously smaller than 3,200 meters per second, which is enormously slower, smaller than 6,100 meters per second, the nanothermite theory is a non-starter. We, as the next slide shows, this was a, a diagram by Duane Deeds that was presented during the Vancouver hearings uh, in, in June of 2012, showing that nanothermite simply can't cut it, that it's too weak to have been responsible for the, de- the destruction of the Twin Towers, and therefore would have had to have been supplemented by explosives. And when I have challenged them on this very point, they have replied, well, it could have been combined with an explosive to make it explosive, to which I replied, the same is true of toothpaste. It's not explosive but it could have been combined with explosives to make it explosive. And where Mark Hightower, as the next slide shows, has issued what he calls his nanothermite challenge. Find and document peer-reviewed scientific research publications that demonstrate that a gas-generated nanothermite, GGNT, based upon iron Oxide and aluminum, where the gas-generating chemical added to the nanothermite is not itself a high explosive, can be made to be a high explosive with at least a detonation velocity of 2,000 meter per second. The author of this paper will donate to architects and engineers $1,000 for every 1,000 meters per second a detonation velocity that can't be documented, the donation not to exceed $1,000. Well, no one's taken markup on that challenge for the obvious reason that they can't. And if you turn to the next slide, you'll see that while the deadline for the challenge was the 20th of June, 2011, without even one entry, Kevin Ryan would post an article on 9-11 Blogger that very day talking about the explosive nature of nanothermite where he admits they know very little about the role that it may have played on 9-11, quoting Kevin Ryan. Although we know that nanothermite has been found in the WTC dust, we do not know what purpose it served. In the deceptive demolition of the WTC buildings, it could be that the nanothermite was used simply to drive fires in the impact zones and elevator areas, fires which would otherwise have gone out too early or not been present at all, and thereby create the deception that jet fuel-induced fires could, weaken, could wreak the havoc scene. Nanothermite might also have been used to produce the explosives necessary to destroy the structural integrity of the buildings. He means by that it might have been used to weaken various internal structures. But clearly, he's tacitly conceding it cannot have blown the buildings apart. And what distresses me is that for all the money, all the resources, all the members— they have at architects and engineers. They've not been able to explain what could have destroyed the building in combination with nanothermite, which manifestly itself cannot have done that. And the next slide reflects the alternative view of Judy Wood from her book, Where Did the Towers Go? <clears throat> it fascinates me that Judy Wood insists that she does not have a theory but it states on her cover evidence of directed free energy technology on 9-11, which means that her theory is that directed free energy technology was used on 9-11. Go to the next slide. You'll find I did a review of Judy Wood's uh, book, which, in fact, I, 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 I published initially on the 20th of May, right before the Vancouver hearings, and where, which was a five-star review originally. And when I returned after the hearings, I saw it had been attacked thousands of times, and that we had so much more evidence now that she was wrong that I revised the review and downgraded it to three star. Now, there's a fascinating story here impressive but severely flawed argument by elimination. Rather than advance a theory of her own, Judy Wood, PhD, has brought together an enormous quantity of high-quality evidence that functions as a partial foundation for evaluating alternative explanations. What she has done has classically been referred to as a prolegomenon or as a prelude to further study. The word indirect belongs in her subtitle, since Indirect Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11 is a less misleading and closer approximation. She demonstrates that the Twin Towers cannot possibly have collapsed, and that some massive source of energy was required to blow them apart and convert them into millions of cubic yards of ver- very fine dust. That also cannot have been done by thermite, thermate, nanothermite. She offers reasons for doubting that it was done by nukes, but her arguments actually only rule out large nukes in the sub-basements. Not sophisticated arrangements or micro or mini-nukes. The the review continues, as the next slide shows. New evidence based upon the U.S. Geological Survey's dust sample shows that the destruction of the Twin Towers was primarily a nuclear event. The most important defect in her book is the failure to report a come-to-grips with the presence of barium and strontium, thorium and uranium, lithium, lanthanum, yttrium, chromium, and tritium. Where she mentions the latter, but inexplicably minimizes the values for tritium that were obtained, which was scientifically irresponsible. The idea that directed energy weapons were used is seriously underdeveloped, where her strongest claim is that dews provide vastly more energy than conventional explosives and can be directed. Anyone familiar with the gross observable evidence knows the former to be true. Or mini or micro nukes, not to mention a new positron antimatter technology, satisfy both conditions. For the latest on best and how it was done, serious students should check out the Vancouver hearings. And notice how many comments have been posted at the time I made this capture 7,271. And that's on my review of her book. That's not on her book, that's on my review of her book mostly by fans of Judy Wood who wanted to attack me as a method of avoiding dealing with the evidence. Here in, in slide 52 is a further report, uh, which we have published elsewhere, about the role of the the findings of the U.S. Geological Survey. And what's especially fascinating about this development is here you have <clears> – <throat> A government agency, the U.S. Geological Survey, providing evidence that contradicts the government's official account. You can't do much better than that to show the government's account is incoherent. If you turn to the next slide, you'll discover that Jeff Prager had published the first two books, of which I'm aware, about the the nuking of uh, America in his proof of Terinary fission in New York on 9-11, he observed that dust samples are the best evidence of what happened on 9-11, that the USGS samples taken over dozens of locations, actually 35, show how various elements interacted and proves that fission reactions had taken place. Three, that multiple myeloma in the general population at a rate of three to nine incidents per 100,000 people, when the rate was 18 per 100,000 among first responders, That other cancers of relatively unusual types have appeared among the responders, including non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, leukemia, thyroid, pancreatic, brain, prostate, esophageal, blood and plasma cancers, and that as of March 2011, no less than 1,003 first responders have died from various cancers. Well, you look at the next slide and you'll see there's a more recent article about this, The Curse of Ground Zero number of cancer patients among 2009-11 responders and survivors triples, to more than uh, 4,500. And in fact, if you read the fine print, one program has 4,800 patients suffering from these debilitating diseases, another program has 1,600, so we're talking about 64,000 cases of, of, of first responders and citizens in New York suffering from the debilitating consequences of exposure to ionizing radiation. So, how was it done? Well, if you look at the next, if you look at the next slide, you'll see a model which, where I am using this only to give an illustration of how they could have arranged sophisticated mini or micro hooks to take out, for example, a cube of 10 floors per second. Since a 110-story North Tower uh, was standing completely erect, to destroy 110 stories at 10 floors per second would take 11 seconds. That corresponds to to the, 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 the National Institute of Standards and Technology estimate. Because the South Tower, the top three were tilting to the side and blown as one nine seconds, which, again, agreements with the National Institute of Standards and Technology. If you go on to the next slide, you begin to get an idea why they had to adopt this very novel technology of blowing the buildings up from the top down, leaving a minimal opportunity for any of the significant part of the building to collapse because the buildings were constructed inside of a kind of an enormous dike known as the bathtub. And had any significant portion of the bathtub been shattered, Hudson River water would have flooded beneath lower Manhattan, the most valuable real estate in the world, into the subways and the path train tunnels. And if you look at the next slide, you'll see the, the after the excavation of the location, what, that the bathtub was essentially left intact. And I would simply add that... Uh, as you see in the following slide, uh, that this was indispensable to the success of the operation, why they had to contrive such an ingenious mode of destruction and how successfully, how successful they were in doing so. And if you take a look then at the final slide, here is a compendium of evidence substantiating all the claims I've been making here. Uh just copious documentation, 15 experts on different aspects of the case. America nuked on 9/11. So w- perhaps now we understand why Aidenon was reluctant to have his video presented. when he wants to, he's got a close friend with architects and engineers for 9/11, Kevin Ryan, and when he, he would, I infer, stand up in defense of the official narrative of the Holocaust, neither of which it turns out is remotely indefensible.